For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. How are you all doing this week? Thank you to everyone who shared our episode a little while back with Venya from Vogue Ukraine. We really had a phenomenal reaction to that one, and I'm so glad that I could bring it to you. I think this week's interview, even though it's about a very different subject, it's a bit similar in that it covers a current and really full-on event. It's, it's important, I think, for us to tell these stories when there is a fashion angle and when we can. And it's not easy, actually, because, you know, we're, I always go on about how we're such a small team. It's me. But we do plan really far in advance. And to pull off these kind of short notice interviews is a bit of an endeavour. There's a lot of moving parts. But I, I really think it's worth it with something like this. And I'm very glad that we've pulled off this interview with our wonderful guest, Zoe Gamo. We're going to be talking all about climate change and what it's like to live through it because it's here now. It's not some scary prospect in the distant future. So Zoe is going to be telling us all about the catastrophic floods that recently hit Australia in northern New South Wales, where she lives, and in Queensland. And actually, the, this very intense rain affected, I think it was a thousand kilometres of the eastern seaboard of Australia. So we saw it in Sydney, obviously not to the extent that they did where Zoe is, but Rain was intense and Weather Zone reported, I wrote this down, that in some areas, I think this was around Gympie, but creeks raised by seven metres in seven hours. Can you imagine? Now, where Zoe lives in the Northern Rivers region of New South Wales, the scenes were literally horrific. Rivers breaking their banks, the roads were blocked, trees were down, houses, cars, public buildings completely underwater. And I'm sure you know that people died. There was no internet. It took days in some cases for emergency services to get there and help. And actually what happened, as you will hear, is that people just had to rescue each other. I mean, it's, it's just so intense. And as I'm recording this on the day that we go live, which is March the 22nd of 2022, wow, that is a lot of twos. So it's about three weeks since the big floods happened. There are reports or warnings that there could be more flash flooding up there. So this is not over because climate change means more frequent extreme weather events, right? Everywhere. But also it's not over for the thousands of people and for the animals and the trees and the landscapes that have been devastated by these floods in Australia. You're going to hear from Zoe what it's been like for her community and the mind-boggling extent of the cleanup and also the subsequent housing crisis. But this is not a gloomy interview. Our theme is radical hope. And what you're going to hear most of is how actually local women in particular, but how people got together and sprang into action to help and organise on the ground. There's also a fashion angle, because actually clothes take on a special meaning when you've lost everything. But Zoe Gamo is a ray of sunshine, I love her. She's a former actor, and these days I would describe her as a sort of environmentalist, movement builder, mum, and fashion activist. 
And actually, we met when she interviewed me at a Byron Bay Writers Festival event a few years ago about my book. And on that day, she was wearing her famous one green dress. And you're going to hear her talk all about this. But essentially, she wore it to all events, including on the promo circuit for her husband, Damon Gamow's fantastic documentary, 2040. And the idea was to challenge thinking around, like, why do you need something new? So we just wore this one green dress to every event she ever attended. <laughs> Love it. All right. There's a lot in this one. I can't wait to hear what you think. Let's get to our interview with Zoe Gamo on Radical Hope. Welcome to the podcast, Zoe Gamo, and thank you so much for joining us at short notice during this pretty tough time. Oh, pleasure, Claire. Thank you for having me. Um, yeah, it's been a very odd time indeed, but glad to be speaking with you. Why don't you just begin by telling us where you live and what's been going on in your area? Right. So I live in the northern rivers of New South Wales and People might popularly know that internationally as Byron Bay and the areas that surround it. And currently we are experiencing, uh, it's, it's hard to even put into words, but we're basically experiencing our second once in 100 year event of devastating floods. It's been all the way from the southern coast of Queensland to past the northern rivers of New South Wales, so the east coast of Australia and the areas that sort of surround those key areas of Byron Bay and the Gold Coast. And I just think it's been an incredibly challenging time for this community and we are right in the thick of it. So excuse me if I'm a bit befuddled today, but um, we're speaking from the trenches. Absolutely. And you said the second one in 100 year event, but the second in 11 years. Exactly. Yeah, that's correct. And we also had bushfires two years ago. We're looking back and we're going to go back to the Sunday and Monday of February 27th, 28th. We're recording this on the 16th of March, so a couple of weeks have passed, but it's still raining there, right? Yeah. I mean, it's raining on and off. We had a bit of sun yesterday, which dried things out nicely, but mostly, yes, it's very wet and the ground is already so sodden that only the tiniest bit of rain raises the level, the water level again. The property where I live has been flooded around the perimeter because we live on a little creek and fortunately our own home hasn't been affected, but almost everyone we know in the area has been affected by this. Before we press record, Zoe, you were saying that it makes you anxious when you you look at the weather and I want listeners to think about what this means because maybe you're not used to this feeling, but in the moment that you're living through right now, Zoe, and all the people around you too, rain is frightening. You think is it going to happen again? What if it's heavy again, right? It's anxiety inducing. That's exactly right. And I'm not a person who's really prone to that and I'm pretty level-headed. And yet the other night I found myself as I was going to bed with our two children in the cabin and my husband away for work, you know, the rain began and within an hour, the level was as high as it takes in two days to get. So I was going to bed with this water all around us thinking, at what point do I leave if it gets any higher? Just because the ground is so sodden, you know, the, the, the water comes up so fast. There's nowhere for it to go. The ground is already saturated. I'd like to ask you to take us back to that weekend. So it was sort of Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, of February the from February the 27th. What happened? Well, I'll actually go back a morning before that, which is the Saturday morning before the rain really set in. 
that morning I woke up and we'd had a sleepover with a, my daughter's friend and she'd stayed the night and we woke up in the morning and the sky was red. And I don't know if you've ever heard the old adage of red sky at night, sailor's delight, red sky at morning, sailor's warning. But it instantly came to mind and I thought, oh my goodness, look at that red sky. What is this day going to bring? And a little were we to know and the rain just started and the puddle around our house was getting bigger and I thought maybe it's time to get this little one home from her play date and the creek was rising and we left our home on Saturday and we didn't go back for two days. The river rose so high, uh, it just really wasn't very safe to be there or to go back in and we went and stayed with my um, husband's parents and then the following night we stayed with a friend by the time we did get back home, within that 48 hours, everybody in the area had experienced the worst flooding that they'd ever experienced in this region's history. There was a huge flood in the 70s, which was considered the worst previously, and this one exceeded it by metres, mm. metres of water. And we're talking about water that, I mean, if people, especially if you're listening outside of Australia, maybe you've seen these pictures on the news, but maybe you haven't. We're talking about water that started lapping up on your doorstep. And then if you were in a house with two stories, it was coming up to the first story. It's coming up the stairs. I mean, this yeah. is cars underwater. This is... This is two-story houses underwater. This is apartment blocks of three stories underwater. This is serious volumes of water. And not just one house, not just two houses, blocks and blocks of houses, suburbs of houses, whole areas, whole regions, all up and down the east coast of Australia. To mm. imagine that volume of water, it's, it's virtually impossible until you go to those places and you look at the mud on the ceiling of a second-storey house and you hear the stories of the, of the man who kayaked out his second-storey window. Or my own friend who, on Sunday morning, I knew she was in Lismore and Lismore was one of the worst areas hit in closest proximity to Byron, um, Lisbon and Mullumbimby are probably the two closest towns to Byron Bay itself, which lots of people who are listening overseas will know. And Lismore is a university town, so there's a lot of students there. Um, it's got a very strong art scene and there's a lot of a strong Indigenous community there. Koori Mail, the local newspaper, the local Aboriginal Indigenous newspaper is out in Lismore. So it's a really interesting, fun, diverse university town and it was terribly hit. And a friend of mine who lived in Lismore on the Sunday morning, I text messaged her because I thought, oh, my goodness, this amount of rain, she's definitely going to be flooded. And she was waiting to be rescued by the SES with her two children and her husband from their second-story balcony. Sitting on the balcony with her kids? Yeah, on the balcony with her kids. They'd been nailing furniture to the walls to try and climb up to avoid the floodwaters rising. And by the time they were rescued by the SES, they'd gone as high as they could possibly go before you know, getting on the roof. So Unbelievable. And this isn't unique. This is every single person who lives in their area has this story. And they were being rescued by um, not just the SES because the, their presence was very light on the ground at that stage. The authorities' presence on the ground was very light at that stage because it was really unprecedented how quickly these levels would rise. And the SES is the... the State Emergency Service, yeah. So you've just told a story of someone you know who was trapped essentially on her balcony with her kids. We've seen many people sitting on their roofs. We've seen people trying to rescue each other in canoes and tinnies, mm. little boats and kayaks. 
Yeah. And I think the thing that a lot of people say is, well, why didn't these people know? Why didn't they evacuate? Well, the two key elements there are, one, it happened at night. So another friend of ours woke up with her laptop floating past her bed and someone banging on her window yelling, get out of the house because people were sleeping. People were sleeping as the water rose so high. This is climate change in action. This is climate change here. And it affects indiscriminately. Actually, that's not true. It affects discriminately. We know that. We know that more marginalised communities are at the front lines of the impacts of climate change globally. And that's no different here. If you are already disadvantaged, then this is a double whammy. However, when I say it affects indiscriminately, what I mean is it could happen to any of us at any time. This is what climate change is like. And right now in this community, you're talking about being stuck on the roof of your house. Maybe for, I'm going to tell you a story shortly about days, but certainly hours being frightened and not knowing how you're going to get out alive, never mind what you're going to find when you return, right? That's exactly right. And and it was days for a lot of people, Claire. And, you know, there are stories about people seeing someone come past in a boat and then not seeing them again for a week in some of the more remote communities like Cabbage Tree Island, which has a strong Indigenous population. And you're right, you know, this is indiscriminate and discriminatory at the same time because we know that marginalised communities are more affected and what's more... Our Indigenous community particularly has a very strong relationship to place and, you know, the idea of just relocating people who have grown up on country and have a deep reverence for the land upon which they, in which they live and play, it actually severs the deep ties that this land has with its occupants. And so this is a deeper issue than just build somewhere else or, you know, be somewhere else. But yeah, I I think this is climate change in action. This is the first time we've seen in our area now several, a few times in the last few years, you know, with the floods just some years ago and then the bushfires two years ago and now floods again. It's a very different experience to be theorising about what it feels like and then to have it on your doorstep. And I, I feel like, you know, we're somewhat preaching to the choir here because if people are listening to your podcast, they they already have some avenues into this conversation. But this is the deeper context behind what's happening here. And mm-hmm. it's something that's very uncomfortable for people to talk about currently, especially our particular government. And I won't go into detail with that, but we have an election coming up. And, you know, there have even been situations such as not receiving funding or support because our constituent doesn't vote for the current government that's in power. So, I mean, these are political and systemic issues as well as um, environmental issues. I'm not going to go too deep into the politics on this, not least because if you live outside of Australia, you can't keep up with it. Suffice to say that our current Prime Minister, at the time of recording maybe he'll be gone by the time you listen, once brought a lump of coal into Parliament and is shall we say, not known for his action on climate. But I do want to just raise this since since you brought up this sort of area of discussion, Zoe. The Coordinator mm. General of Australia's National Recovery and Resilience Agency is this bloke called Shane Stone. And at the height of the disaster, he gave an interview to the Sydney Morning Herald in which he said, and I quote, if people want to live amongst the gum trees, what do they think is going to happen? The house falls into a river and they want to blame the government. Mm. 
As someone who chooses to live among the gum trees, Zoe, what is your response to that? (laughs) My response, my response is that there's not many gum trees in the main street of Lismore. There's not many gum trees in the main street of Mullumbimby. There's not many gum trees in these central business district of the towns that these people live in. And it was just an incredible level of privilege to be able to speak to this disaster in such a way. Mm. And I'm so glad that you brought up the Indigenous community there. This is about a deep connection with place and a place that is changing as a result of climate change. This is not about a choice to be a hippie who wants to go and, I don't know, um putting myself in the mind of Shane Stone here, Mm. make trouble in a hippie community? Absolutely not. The people who are affected are diverse and some, even though they've been affected, won't be connecting this to climate change. In fact, there was a a brilliant interview that I I watched during this time, and I, I can't remember the source, I'm sorry, but it was a fellow, a very conservative farmer, saying when these floods happened back then a few years ago, I just thought, oh, those hippies are complaining about this climate issue and it's nothing to do with that. He said, but I've never seen anything like this and now I understand better and I think it's to do with the climate. And so just to see that about turn, that that shift in some of the perception, mm. people are, are asking questions. People who've farmed land for generations are starting to see that this is unusual and this is not a theme that they've seen on their land before. You mentioned Lismore is a university town. I saw pictures that affected, that stuck in my head of the library that had been inundated with water in the town there and they'd had to throw all the books out. And so all the books were piled up outside the library and I thought, what a metaphor for (laughs) just the fall of civilization. I don't know. God. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. And I mean, that library is an enormous building. It's high and you should see the pile out the front of it in the photographs. You're right, Claire. It's, it's the height of the whole first floor is just these books that are sodden. That's the other thing. There's a lot of buildings which are going to be condemned after this. And so some will be able to be moved back into and some will not. So there's, we've now got a, a housing crisis on our hand. Aside from the waste of the possessions too, which have been discarded during this process out of necessity. I want to come back to that and ask you what it was like and how you came together as a community to try to clean up and to support people. But I want to share this story because it comes via a friend of mine Mm. and I just saw it yesterday and it makes you cry, so be warned. Mm. But my friend Marnie Skillings, she's a fashion designer here in Sydney. Her sister Natalie lives in Woodburn, which is a small community south of Lismore. She runs a a horse riding school. Mm. And when the floods came, she had to get in a tinny, that's a little boat, and lead her horses to Woodburn Bridge. And she said, I could hear my three pet Jersey cows drowning. They were bellowing and the horses were swimming with their heads above the water and resting their hooves on a fence post when they could here and there. It was traumatic. It took her eight trips back and forth. She was with her husband, I think. And they were stuck on that bridge, sleeping on that bridge for seven days with their traumatized horses before they were rescued. On the land where I live, um, I live with two professional surfers. Um, who are represented by Patagonia, so they're environmentalist surfers. And one is it Dave Rastovich? And, yeah, Dave Rastovich and Lauren Hill. So Dave Lauren, Rastovich is an act. 
Factual legend. Dave went out with his tinny and was helping the local vets, transporting local vets to places exactly like your friends and maybe they even crossed paths um, and taking feed to horses that were stuck on roofs, cows, the same. A cow washed up from Nimbin. So, you know, here, Nimbin is sort of inland, very far inland from the coast. And this cow actually somehow made its way all the way to the beach. I think it was Kings or White's Beach along seven, that seven mile way. And it had its ear tag, which is how it was identified as having traveled that far. There's these incredible stories of animal as well as people discoveries. Let's not forget the animals. I was Googling and wished I wasn't because I couldn't stop thinking about it. Mm. What happens to all the burrowing animals? And the answer is they drown, right? Because if you are a little wombat or echidnas, we're in the breeding season, I think, they're all going to be drowned, aren't they? It's horrible. And we're not going to talk about that because we're too busy looking at infrastructure and government and people until a bit later on when we maybe recognise the magnitude of that. I don't know. Well, there's also, you know, these incredible signs in nature that I've started to understand more after this experience. The days preceding the flood, I mean, we always have this incredible chorus of crickets that comes in most evenings. And the days preceding the flood, it was the loudest I have ever heard the crickets and the frogs around our property. And they would sort of pulse in this convergence, almost like a choir together. And it was so loud, it was deafening. It would literally just buzz through your brain. It was it was unbelievable. And now I think, God, if I ever hear that again, I know what's coming. They know. That's yeah, that's what our indigenous communities know. They read these signs and they had this deep connection to country. And it's only through moments like this that you start to see there are signs are all around us that we can read. The other thing is the ants all come up from the ground in the days preceding the floods. So the ants can feel it coming too. And then we've also heard these stories about the snakes that obviously displaced and then people are getting bitten by them when they're trying to escape. In the roofs, in the eaves of roofs and things as they're trying to climb up onto roofs. Yeah, they're everywhere. Everything was displaced. And swimming in the floodwaters also. The floodwaters, it's hard to describe, but people think of floodwater and they think it's just water, right? But it's not. It's toxic waste and sludge. It's everybody's septic tank overflowing. It's car petrol that's leaking out of cars that are floating in this water. It's every bit of waste in a city in a wave of water. And it's also got a very strong current and a very strong pull. So it's not like something you can just wade out into unaffected. It's like being in a very strong ocean where the waves come and they pound you. And everyone's had that experience of feeling overwhelmed in the ocean at least once in their life, I think. And that is what floodwater's like. It pulls it pulls. So it's not just this stagnant thing. And the mud. I mean, I wanted to ask you what the cleanup was like. Well, in the days, I mean, in the days after the flood, in the sort of couple of days after the flood, the first thing myself and a group of friends did is we made a bunch of meals in some takeaway containers that we just had lying around our kitchen. And we drove out to Mullumbimby because it was actually the first place that we could access from where we were. Um, there was a back road that my friend knew about and she had a troopie, which is like a, a sort of, her husband works in camel safaris. <laughs> so she, we had this really uh, utilitarian ute to drive around in and it had, you know, two-way, ra- it had radio and um, massive sort of high tyres and was very, it's a real people mover. So we drove out to Mullumbimby in the people mover 
and we just took the meals out and there were people on the street just emptying out their houses, every single bit of furniture in their house, just piles in front of their homes. And we just went and helped. And we started in a street where my friend knew that she had an old acquaintance and it was a little street in Mullumbimby that was particularly badly hit. And we arrived there and um, we walked up and down the street because she couldn't remember which house it was that this friend lived in. And eventually we were walking past and her friend came out and saw the four of us and burst into tears and we just started helping her clean. We pulled out furniture for her. We found a a guy on the street who happened to have a gurney, which was petrol run because, of course, there's no electricity when the flood water comes to everything. The substations get completely um, flooded out, so all the power's out. So he found a gurney, started gurning out her home, and there was just mud everywhere. The walls just covered in mud, ceilings with mud, roofs with mud. There's just a layer of mud on everything. So we just started cleaning. And there's not a single thing in her home. I mean, the only things you can keep after flood water are wood, hardwood, and some clothes that can be washed out as long as you get to them before the mould does. And then, of course, the house has to dry out. So in the days after the flood, a lot of people were waiting for their houses to dry out and more rain would come. And then when the sun comes, it brings this mould growth and um, it's a real issue currently. It's a real health and safety issue. And then, of course, anything that's in the flood water that, that has been dredged up, like asbestos, there's asbestos all over the beach at the moment. It's just a mess. Mm. If you've never seen this or you've never heard someone tell you about this who's experienced it, you might think flood means water and when things have dried out, that's okay. But we've heard from Zoe about what's carried in the floodwaters, the mud, the pollution, the potentially toxic stuff, the petrol overflows, the sewage septic tank overflow. You can't save your mattress, let's say, or your carpet or your curtains, right? Maybe you could wash your curtains, but you're basically having to pull out everything from inside these houses. And then many of the houses are also affected in terms of structural integrity. That's right. One of the houses we went into to clean. So over the coming weeks, basically um, some friends and I got together and we helped in a few different ways. One was meals, another one was cleaning, and another one was anything anyone needed us to do. And we ended up creating these cleaning teams. One friend in particular started creating these cleaning teams of up to 30, 40 people at a time who would go to houses of people we had some contact with because that's the other thing. Having strangers just walk into your house after an event like that, you've already feeling traumatised and you're feeling vulnerable and then just to have people show up and say, let me help you clean, it's just all a bit, it's all a bit, you know, I don't know, impersonal. So having some loose contact with people in those communities means that there's a trust. And so you're Mm. able to go and help in ways that strangers couldn't or even authorities couldn't. So we'd go around with these cleaning teams and one of the houses we went to, which wasn't condemned, (laughs) the floors were actually buckled like the ocean. You know, they were were like waves. It was an old Queenslander, which is a, a house basically made of Australian hardwood. And there was not a single surface that wasn't buckled, like literally bent. There was no, there were no straight lines. It's unimaginable. It's until you see it, it's very hard to, to understand. But also, you know, there are countries like Bangladesh that experience this kind of thing all the time. So Mm -hmm. really it's a little bit leveling really. And Mm. it does bring it all home. How are you doing, Zoe? I mean, you... You said tired. your partner's away, you've got two children. Yeah. Are you, you must be feeling overwhelmed. 
I have had moments of overwhelm, but I think there's this interesting thing that happens in this situation. You know that there's a lot of people worse off than you, so you kind of just suck it up and you get on with it. I'm tired, but I know I'm not as tired as someone who's lost their home. So if we have a bit more capacity to give, we're giving it right now. In fact, everybody, there's not a single person I know who isn't doing something to contribute right now in very practical or very bigger picture rebuilding kind of ways. We're going to talk about radical hope, (laughs) which we need. But first, I just want to touch on what happened to communications. Your Mm. laptop has now decided to stop its damp (laughs) rattle, but you're, you're squatting in the office of a friend who's got internet connection. What happened to communications? Well, I am a real Luddite, so I'm probably the last person to be able to describe this effectively. But the basics from what I understand of a friend who was the ex-mayor of Byron Bay, um, his name's Simon Richardson, He, I contacted him and, and I was like, what is going on with communications? And he said, the substations are flooded, mm. which basically just means I, I think every bit of power <laughs> that's around is gone. And it's also, Lismore still doesn't have power and it's just not safe at the moment to even have it on because there's so much water. I mean, in people's walls, uh, some of the houses we've cleaned, they've been electric, you know, teams that go in as well and check the electrical appliances and things. And in, mm. in every house, if you pull the power socket out of the wall, the cavities in the wall are full of water and the water oh, will just wow. gush out of the cavities. So it's just electricity and water don't mix and, yeah, yeah. this is the result So if of anyone's it. thinking this is a rattly old podcast, you're not going to mind because this is the conditions we're dealing with. Okay, Zoe, <laughs> uh, we're calling this podcast, even though we've shared some really, really harrowing stories, we're calling it Radical Hope Club, which is the name of an organization that you are part of, Mm. a group that you co-founded. I want to share something you wrote on your Instagram and ask you to talk about it. You said, we knew the science, we knew the data, but it's a different thing altogether to actually find ourselves in a climate catastrophe firsthand. Groups have prepared for this and they've dedicated their work and lives to it, but others are on the fringe like us but always keen to show up more. So what is Radical Hope Club? Radical Hope Club was a group that some friends came up with a couple of years ago during the bushfires. And at the time, this was pre-COVID, and there were still climate marches every Friday and big groups gathering. And our children were asking questions, you know, what what's going on, mum? What can we do? I don't understand. Why is this linked to climate change? And we felt completely ill-equipped as parents to be supporting them in answering these questions, despite, you know, all of us having some intel on the situation. And we thought, what can we do as mothers with young children who are often under-resourced and time poor to actually support our children And so we started meeting fortnightly. At the time, you're very generous in saying I was one of the founders, but um, I feel like I was, you know, there was a core group of us at the beginning, but I feel like I was very absent for a lot of months there because I had my second baby shortly after. I was pregnant when we first um, started and then had my second baby. That's when I met you, Claire. It is. When we had our um, conversation. Yeah, we did our in-conversation. We did that in Byron Bay where we talked about my book, Rise and Resist, and you interviewed me and it was fantastic. Yeah, and that was pre-COVID, you know. That was a really special sort of time in reflection because we didn't get that again for another couple of years. And so Radical Hope Club, the term itself is um, from a book by the same name, Radical Hope, by Jonathan Lear, who's a philosopher. 
and he coined the term in 2006. Basically what radical hope means is it's to envision a future that others can't perceive yet because the cultural narrative doesn't support people to be able to see it. And then that is sort of where it came from. And there's a fantastic quote from a a fellow called Raymond Williams who wrote a book called Resources of Hope and it's to be truly radical is to make hope possible rather than despair convincing. So with these themes in mind, we started to dream up Radical Hope Club. But we had those ideas before we had the name. We kind of just started meeting and gathering and thinking, what what is this about other than to support our children? And we, we went through many incarnations. At first, we were going to do community gardens. And then we were going to do, you know, hampers for single mums. And then, you know, we've done lots of things over the last two years. But the the basic thing that has kept us coming back to each other time and time again has been this sense that together we are able to pool the resources we have individually and strengthen those networks for the good of our community. What I like so much about that is that you're placing hope at the centre, that you're saying by acting, by activism, by Mm. working together with others Mm. to do something about the things that can make you feel hopeless, you're flipping it on the head, aren't you? You're flipping that on its head Mm. and saying, actually, that's how we can make hope out of this situation. Yeah, I love that you're talking about active hope because that's something Joanna Macy, who does the deep ecology work, talks about a lot. And that's basically, you know, actively working to create the future you want in the face of the hopelessness you might see. And, And I think hope isn't a pithy thing. It has to be earned. It's really something that comes from realism, I believe, not from idealism. There's an idealistic aspect to it in that we have to have a vision of how things could be different and better than they are. But for me, true radical hope comes from facing the reality around us and being realistic about the changes we can make, working within those parameters but not being limited by them. How amazing. I love how you phrased that, Zoe. And also, let's think about this how maybe it's not enough to just choose hope, which I always think that's such a kind of platitude. Like, how do you just choose it when you're going through something dreadful? Oh, I choose to look on the positive side. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it's it's demeaning to the experience of those who are in the the depths of it, you know, to go, it's all right, let's be hopeful. It it kind of diminishes what they're going through. And and for me, that's the last thing you want to be doing when you're going to someone's home that's just been flooded out and you want to help them. You know, there's an element of sensitivity to that to that sort of conversation. But mm. but the bigger picture around it is absolutely that, you know, action towards change and help definitely inspires hope, not just in yourself, but in others. Actually, it reminded me of a, a lovely podcast we did with Anna Rose, who I'm sure you know, who is an Australian climate activist. <laughs> that one's about courage mm. in climate action and heart. And it's actually very, she's very motivational. It's beautiful. But, but, Zoe, who's in your group? Well, most of us are mums and there's a lady who I I think needs deep acknowledgement, Tiffany Richmond. She's a voiceover artist and has done some incredible voiceover work internationally and she is really the one who's been holding the torch for the last couple of years and keeping Radical Hope Club organised and together. Barry Lieberman, who founded Dumbo Feather and Small Giants, 
an impact investment group and a magazine, which is very hopeful in itself, um, amongst other, many it's other brilliant. things. Yeah, it's a superb magazine. Barry's it's amazing, an incredible publication. Yeah, so Barry was really the one who said, "Come on, let's do this." And so she was a real instigator. She was the real um, match lighter at the beginning of it all, and said, "Come on, you can do this. I've done this before, and I'll show you how." So Barry really set the ball rolling. Tiffany kept it rolling once Barry moved back to Melbourne. Elizabeth Abeg, who's the founder of Spell, and Rachel, who is in Frank and Dolly's, Kylie Izart, who is involved with Flow Hive, which is the company that does the bees, the little bee homes, the honey on tap up here, which was a Kickstarter campaign. Yeah. Incredible, incredible women. Louise Bannister, who has Lunch Lady magazine, so myself and, and many others, but they, we were sort of the core founding crew, if you like. And there's others as well that I haven't mentioned, but there's also another lady up here, Jessica Fried, and, and she and her partner have accommodation. So during these floods, they've actually housed so many individuals who've lost their homes. They've just completely shut down all their accommodations to the public and they have a motel called the Sunseeker and basically it's full of people who were caught in the floods. Amazing. So, so we have to talk about bees because you mentioned the bee. I What's did. it called? Flow what? Flow hive. Flow hive. Yeah. I'm going to look that up. I didn't know it. But when you and I first met, which was in Byron, and it was through Barry, I guess, yes. because... It was part of the Byron Bay Writers Festival. It was at the Beach Hotel there. And I was like, who's going to come and listen to a book talk in the pub at 10 a.m.? Everybody. Like 10 a.m.? That's weird. <laughs> it was packed, wasn't it? It was so it good. It was packed. The whole town was there because there's so many um, fashion people in Byron Bay. Hmm. But you were wearing a green slip dress designed by the aforementioned Lizzie Elizabeth Abeg of Spell. Yes. And on top you had a yellow t-shirt tied in a knot and it was a bees t-shirt. <laughs> and <laughs> it said something like, we need the bees. It said, yeah, my friend who started a t-shirt company, Threads for Change, uh, organic cotton, all that sort of thing. And and 50% of all the profits of her t-shirts went to different organisations. But yes, it said something like, we need bees or save the bees or something like that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but I bring this up because this is a fashion podcast podcast. And even though we of often course. take a long circuitous route away from fashion, we always want a fashion connection. And this is ours, right? Mm. Tell us about, I mean, the B t-shirt I love, but tell us about that green dress. Mm. It has a wonderful story. Well, I've actually got, I mean, you, I don't, no one can see, but the dust of half of it is behind my chair. It's, oh, wow. <laughs> it's a little warm to wear it today, but yeah, I um, the Green Dress was a project I started because my husband is a documentary filmmaker and when he releases his films, I handbag along to his events and wear, you know, things on carpets and things like that. Not that we've done that for a long time with COVID, but I had the idea back when I was working as an actress. I, I did that for 15 years. I haven't done it for about eight years now. It's wonderful relief. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very happy to have moved on. But yes, and I had the idea years ago of thinking, I really, I really loathe the consumerism that the red carpet perpetuates, the idea that we need to wear something new and novel every single time we're seen. And the idea that it also just takes away that our beauty and the way we look as women, especially, is more important. And men now too, there's a lot of pressure, but it's more important than, than the content of our minds and hearts and souls. And I just feel like, and I love fashion, don't get me wrong. I love, I, I'm a op shopper, garage sales, sniffer outer of bargains. I love that kind of thing. Same. I don't think I've bought anything new for oh, 
years now, other than maybe underwear and the occasional swimsuit from Patagonia or something as a real splurge, you know. But I just think, you know, there's so much in the world. We have so much. And I just wanted to find a way to do something different in those social situations and redefine what's normal. Not that my, you know, small profile would do that in any large way, but it just felt meaningful to me. In a way, it was almost more of an art project or, you know, a social impact project of my own. (laughs) But I love this, right? Because we often hear about red carpet activism. I'm going to put that in, you know, quotation marks with a slight sneer Mm -hmm. in brackets afterwards, because what it really means is that you hired or your stylist sourced for you vintage Valentino. Exactly. Wow. (laughs) But then the next time you wear something else, you don't just keep wearing it. One green dress was about you wore that dress always. Always. Over and over again, the same dress. And it's comprised of a slip and a duster. And it's green aptly because I thought it'd be odd not for it to be. And basically whatever I went to, I wore either the slip or the duster or both together. So the both together becomes very formal. The slip by itself is more casual, um, especially with sneakers and a tied up (laughs) t-shirt or the duster can kind of work as an in-between go-to. And then when it's cooler, I can wear the duster. So it was sort of a practical female, for me, take on the man's two-piece suit. And Yeah, I just felt like I never really needed to think too much about what I had to wear. I just would put on my green dress. And I also feel like then the conversation would be redirected from the novelty of the newness to why are you wearing the same dress again? Why is this still something that we're seeing? And I I still don't know where the whole movement is going, but um, it's been meaningful to me. And whether it becomes something that I I turn into something else, uh, we'll wait and see. I also want to mention one more fashion angle which is that there are so many fashion brands in your region or area. And I would say disproportionately so, because it's Mm. kind of an artistic hub. I'm also going to mention, even though it's not relevant, but because geographically it is a thing, I'm sure that especially Netflix watching international listeners would be like, oh, is that up like where Byron Bays is filmed, the new influencer reality TV show on Netflix, right? Mm. People think of Byron as this certain kind of influencer bubble. And that is in the region of what we're talking about, Northern Rivers. But it's also definitely a creative place. And there are lots of sustainability inclined designers there a friend of the show is Spell and Lizzie Beck that we've just mentioned. But there's also, you mentioned Rachel from Frank and Dolly's, which is a, Rachel is part of Radical Hope Group. Frank and Dolly's is a beautiful, sustainable label. There's a streetwear one called Afens or Afens, don't even know how you say it, but it's all made from hemp and it's for skateboarding kids. <laughs> there's, what else is there? There's oh. Magnata. People might know that one. It's a uh, they debuted on Netaporte, they're activewear, but it's knitted. But again, it is sustainably minded. I think there's a uh, this area attracts people who are interested in business, not just for economic reasons, but also for so- social impact reasons. Outland Denim is also another one. They're just up the road a bit further in Queensland, but they're still. Oh, they are, yeah. Mm, they're fantastic too, James Bartell and Co. But yeah, Lizzie and Spell and Rachel, (laughs) I've got a funny story about that actually, but a few mornings after the flood, you know, it was all very harrowing. We were all pretty sad and there'd been a a lot of uh, deep, (laughs) deep wells that people had plumbed. And then we just had this bizarre moment of lightness one day as we were in the ute to or from a town, I don't remember which, that we'd just been helping to clean. 
And I remember Lizzie and Rachel both being sitting in the back seat together and having a little conversation that we overheard. And they were saying, I've never felt like my clothes were yet less practical and not utilitarian enough for a, a natural, like an emergency or a disaster. <laughs> I, I really don't think flouncy dresses are what we need in these situations, but it's all I've got to give people. And <laughs> and then my um the dance school where my child goes to dancing, the teacher said that a lady came the other day to pick up some secondhand dance wear because her kids lost everything in the flood. They lost everything in the flood. And she came and she had this really shell-shocked look on her, look on her face and she was exhausted and and it would have been very harrowing but she was wearing this fabulous spell dress and she actually felt the need to qualify that to the uh, dance teacher by saying I, I'm so sorry I, it was donated. I, I did lose everything in the flood I just was given this spell dress to wear <laughs> by the people at spell and it's really kind I, I, I just don't normally wear this kind of thing <laughs> around town every day so it's so many incredible stories. And then, the, you know, there was another story about a, a lady who was a hoarder in one of the streets who was holding on to her possessions and every time someone would try and throw something out, especially clothes, she had bags and bags of clothes she wanted to repair. Every time she'd try and throw something out, she'd, she'd try and bring it back into her home. And um, these clothes were covered in mud and, and mould and, and it was really hard for her to let go. Clothes have meaning for people, you know, they're personal. They're a choice that we make about ourselves. They're a form of self-expression and Mm. sometimes they have memories. You know, when someone passes away, sometimes people will keep a sweater or babies if, you know, they'll keep baby clothes and things. And people have lost all of these associations and memories that they they have with the possessions they wear. Someone else I knew, we we donated some clothes through some brands we knew to them because they had nothing when they left their home. But a few days later... What was almost more dear to them was when we bought back a load of their washed laundry folded that we'd oh, managed to gosh. salvage from the floodwaters. Yeah, and and they cried. You know, that I'm they sure. were. It was their things. Yeah, but it's also tied up with dignity and being able to absolutely feel looked after. And mm. I think it's also tied up with shame as well. You know, just all of it that it feels there's just so much in clothes. And you know, listeners to this podcast know that we obviously resist the idea that clothes don't mean anything. Of course they do, but they mean different things in different contexts. And I think in when we're talking about losing possessions, perhaps they could be the least meaningful, but perhaps they could also be the most essential. I don't know. It depends. It depends on the story you attach to it, right? Well, also just from a really practical sense, you know, everything was wet. So a friend of mine explained that when she arrived at the evacuation centre with her two-year-old and her eight-year-old, the first thing she did was look for the highest place she could keep her and herself and her children and closest to a window in case the floodwaters kept rising and she had to climb out and she didn't want to have to climb over the other hundreds of bodies in the evacuation centre with her kids. So that was the first thing she did. She said the second thing she did was try and get them dry because they were wet and she just wanted to be dry because it felt really important to her. There was nothing around except there was a bag of donation clothes so she ended up wearing the bike shorts of a 10-year-old girl that she had to rip at the seams from this donation bag so that they would fit over her hips and, you know, things that were just on hand. And there were clothes for children but not so many clothes for adults. So for her to be dry, yeah, she was squeezing into kids' clothes. Wow. I mean, that's so effective. We take this for granted if we're lucky, don't we? Yeah. But in fact, when that's taken Mm. from you, it's a fundamental right to be able to be clothed in something that, is dry that can protect you, isn't it? It's a it's a form of shelter. At, at its most essential, clothing is a sort of a form of shelter. And like you said, dignity. 
she said, uh, you know, there was a lady in the street as we were driving one day who didn't have shoes and I jumped out of the car and I gave her my shoes because she didn't have any and she needed them to cross the road and she was elderly and it was prickly and some clothing is essential. And, you know, I agree there's there's an artistic and beautification component to fashion, which is when times are high, that's fashion at its best. You know, it becomes this beautiful ornamentation in the way that birds have their feathers. And when times are low, fashion is a, a form of shelter, I believe, mm. that can just have people feeling safe and dry. Another thing that's been happening here, which people don't really talk about, is the donations that people receive after an event like this. I was in communication with a group up here called Resilient Byron and one of their leaders, Ella, who runs that group, and she said, there's something people don't talk about and I'm going to call it the second flood. And that's all the donations that come in that inundate us. We have clothes, piles high, some of which are completely unusable except for rags. We have bedding beyond our capacity we have all these underpants. She's like, does anybody need underpants? You know, people send donations because they want to be well-meaning and they want to help and they feel powerless often from where they are and that's a really practical way to help. And it is as long as it then doesn't cause more constriction in these spaces that are already um, full to capacity. And and the other issues that we see, obviously, you know, there's huge amounts of waste on the street. And, and a catastrophe like this leads to huge amounts of waste, huge amounts of duplication of resources and products which are sent because everybody's scrambling to help, but there's no order to the help. So that said, people very quickly find ways to make order and bring that in. So, you know, if I've got too much of this, who can I send it to? But it's just another thing that people don't talk about and don't think about, but it's something that we've definitely seen up here during this event. There's so much in what you're saying there, Zoe. I'm so glad that you made the time to to record this with us. Thank you. I I want to finish on how women have got together to help their community. And of course, it's not limited to women, but I want to talk about women. Yes. There is a wonderful meditation teacher. She's more than that. She's the founder of something called The Broad Place. Her name is Jackie Lewis. Mm. I've known her for a long time. I follow her on Instagram. She's a wonderful. If you want to learn meditation, this is not an ad. This is just me saying how rad she is. You can do her online courses. She's great. But she lives up there and she posted about what's going on and the leadership work that she's involved with. I just want to share what she called it on Instagram and we'll share a link so you can watch this talk that she basically gave from her experience of what's been happening there. She described it as heart-led leadership. Mm. And she was talking in particular about the women that she happened to be working with. Again, it's not to exclude men, but just her her experience there. She was saying the women leading this heart-led leadership movement, if you like. She said there was no room for ego, competitiveness, or ownership. It was just how do we help? What actions need to be taken now? And now that we know we want to help, who can we lean into? And she talked about this horizontal rather than vertical structure. Mm. So instead of that whole patriarchal top-down thing where you got to get red tape, you got to get him in charge to sign mm. stuff off, there was no room for that. And you've been describing that work in practice through this conversation, Zoe. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about that and heart-led leadership? What does it mean to you? Well, I've got a great story that illustrates this, so I might just share that. 
One of the women who I didn't mention as a founder because I was hoping I'd get an opportunity to share this later is Kazi Okalani. And I really want to acknowledge her specifically because she was the one who uh, really brought together all the cleaning teams for our group Radical Hope Club. But she also did that separate to Radical Hope Club. She'd touch in with us and connect and we'd pull resources from there. But she really drove this herself largely along with Rachel from Frank and Dolly's, I would say. Anyway, Kazi has been organising cleaning groups since pretty much day two, three of the disaster up here. And one of the things that has been noted about her particular way of bringing people into people's spaces is that it has never felt threatening to people at a time when they're feeling really vulnerable. I've seen her on the ground with people who've lost everything and it's brought me to tears to see the sensitivity with which she and the women that she's been working with have gone into people's homes and spaces and an intimate time at a tragic time and managed to become a part of the fabric of their healing through cleaning. It sounds small, but it's actually enormous when you're exhausted and at the end of your rope and you have no idea how you're going to get this all done to have a group of women, six women, rock up and start to finely and detailedly and holistically work through every single piece that is precious to you and ask you, what would you like done with this? How can I help? It, it has just over and over moved people to tears. There's something authentic about that, that horizontal, as you said, not top-down approach, but that within the community approach that cannot be replicated. Cassie was actually then reached out to by the ADF when they arrived weeks later, might I add. But the ADF is the Australian Defence Force for anyone overseas. So when they arrived finally and belatedly, they actually ended up contacting Cassie and Cassie was then able to instruct them as to what houses need cleaning, in what way, was this heavy lifting, was this detailed work, what were the occupants' needs in an intimate and gentle way, not in a heavy-handed approach. And this is something that, you know, government authorities and things can't do because they're not on the ground. The people who are in community know the needs of the community. This whole recovery thus far really has been driven by the people as much as sometimes the news would like us to think otherwise. From what I've seen on the ground, it's been people, everyday people, a lot of mothers And because our area has a lot of young families, there are a lot of mothers who are at home with young children. There are lots of mothers out there doing a lot of the heavy lifting and a lot of the cleaning. There's a lot of blokes out there too with their machinery, you know, lifting piles of rubbish into dump trucks. And also the the blokes are in there too, absolutely. But the women have a particular sensitivity and a particular awareness about the needs of the community, which cannot be replicated Zoe Gamo, you give me radical hope, mate. Thank you very much for doing this. Do you know what I love? Even though I love him and he's a ledge, I love that we didn't even talk about your husband yet because, like, why? (laughs) That's not what we're here for. But I am going to give you the opportunity to plug Damon's new film, which is about to come out, Regenerating Mm. Australia. Well, it's out at the moment. And what's been hard is he's actually been away. While a lot of this has been going on, he's been away on tour. And it's that's been tricky at times because, you know, there's this real disconnect with what's going on for us here on the ground and what he's been experiencing, you know, in the plush and relaxed states that he's been where there's no disaster at hand, you know, imminently. But what he's doing, the work is needed too because there's the micro and the macro. Damon's work, Regenerating Australia, is a recent film about the solutions to climate change in Australia that we have on hand. It's 17 minutes and it comes with a very uh, tangible action plan that people can apply. And I think we need to approach this from all angles. You know, that work is just as important as this work. But 
what's interesting is this work that we're doing on the ground is often less acknowledged, less seen and more invisible. So it's very easy, I think, to want to glorify um, and think that somebody else is going to do it and save us all. And actually, it's not. It has to come from community efforts and individual efforts that collaborate into small groups, which I think become very powerful in times like these. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Zoe. And everyone in Australia, go out and find out ways to watch Regenerating Australia. It's obviously so exciting that Amy Gamma has made this new film. And internationally, you should watch 2040, which is his previous film all about climate, hope and action. It's brilliant. Uh, Claire, thank you. I so deeply appreciate your care. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram at The Wardrobe Crisis. And I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. 